0: First, a brief intro to this recording. When I was giving this talk during the retreat, I forgot to turn the recorder on until I was in the middle of the talk. I later managed to reconstruct that early part on the basis of my notes, but the reconstructed portion which I will offer here as replacement, is not identical to the original, and I'm afraid it lacks the vivacity infused by a live audience. Oh well. Here we go. The title of today's talk (coughs) is... Beginner's mind. Before trying to clarify this title, let me take a second look at the title of yesterday's talk, which was Dharma 101. Dharma, as in the teachings of the Buddha, meaning the teachings of the Buddha, and 101, implying an equivalence with an undergraduate college introductory course. At the end of the talk, I reflected on the title I had chosen and concluded that it really didn't fit the content of the talk. You see, on the one hand, academic learning relies on gathering layer upon layer of facts and knowledge. The Buddha's teachings, on the other hand, rely on unlearning this second-hand knowledge we have amassed, so that we can make room for what we discover firsthand along the way of life and practice. Now, yesterday's talk. Title aside, showed how to proceed in this path of discovery. As summarize in the Buddha's Four, four Noble Truths, let me restate here the first three truths as a reminder of what that way involves. The first noble truth says there is suffering. The second noble truth says suffering comes from craving and clinging. In succession, once you crave, we tend to cling. The third truth says the end of suffering is the end of clinging. And obvious conclusions from the first two, from particular, from the second. The point of stating these truths is not to incorporate them to our store of knowledge, perishes thought, but to invite us to check them out firsthand. Which brings us to today's topic. a topic that has to do with creating space, creating the necessary space in our minds so that the exploration can occur. So, beginner's mind refers to that spacious, uncluttered mind which is able to discover how things actually are trammeled by preconceptions. The phrase beginner's mind was popularized by the late Shunryo Suzuki Roshi, a Japanese master who came to America 50 years ago and who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. His only book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, is a collection of of talks he gave at the San Francisco Center and also a powerful source of inspiration for my talk today. But before going into the beginner's mind, let us take a look at the other side of the coin, namely the ordinary cluttered mind, which I will dub the finished mind. Finished in the sense that it sees itself as essentially completed, finishing touches and all. Perhaps just needing to download more updated information into the pre-established patterns and programs. such a mind is a must is absolutely essential in our technological world And, and colleges are rightly so the primary arenas where such minds are trained and finished in fact I should know this very well I've taught for Taught molecular biology at colleges and universities for about 30 years. And, and also, in fact, I, my father, who was somebody I greatly admired, he wrote a book in Spanish entitled, I don't know, say it in Spanish, Educación para la Era Tecnológica education for the technological era, and absolutely he was right on target in all he said for that particular need, for the technological need. And yet, just as there are pluses, there are also minuses to such an education. It works superbly for that which can be fitted into the prescribed categories. But it can only respond by denial to all that does not fit. Take medicine, for instance. You go to see a physician, right? If your symptoms fit the diagnostic profile of this or that condition, the physician Probably will be able to deal with your problem quite effectively. But if you don't fit, forget it. You'll be diagnosed to be in perfect health, no matter how wretched you actually are. So, overall, the finished mind can only deal with the foreseeable, with the predictable. The rest is filtered out. This confines us to a very narrow space. Freedom is beyond its reach. If you want to be free, you need to access the beginner's mind. How do we do that? One way of making contact with the beginner's mind is to recollect those times of childhood before the cultural programming set in. On Thanksgiving Day, a week or so ago, on my favorite TV news show, Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman interviewed folk singer Buffy St. Marie. Here are snippets of the dialogue. Amy, and when did you discover music as a way to express yourself? Buffy, I think I was about three. I mean, it's my... Earliest memory of music, and I saw a piano. And I didn't play Barbies, and I didn't play sports, I played art. I made pictures, and I danced, and I listened to music, and I played piano. It wasn't me, it was. And I think that most people are naturally what we call talented. Like, when you take a little bunch of kids, a bunch of little kids to the beach, they all make music, and they make rhythm, and they dance, and they use the imaginations, and they make drama, and they make sandcastles and architecture. So, I think that I'm one of the lucky few who have just managed to hold on to that throughout school and business. And I still feel like a kindergartner about the arts. And then there is an extraordinary writer, at least in my view. French writer Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, quite well known for his uh, book called The Little Prince, in French, Le Petit Prince. In this fictional book, Saint-Exupéry recalls the times when, at age six, he says, he made his first drawing, which looked like as I showed it uh, to the group in the retreat, but for the audio audience, I'll have to describe it. Well, it's a, it's a structure that looked very much like a hat. Yeah, the profile of a ha- hat. And he says that when he was young, little, he would show it to the grown-ups up, grown and ask, does it make feel scared? And they would answer, why be scared of a hat? But the child on this story had not drawn a hat. It looked like a hat to, to us, to, to the grown-ups. But what he had actually drawn was a picture of a boa constrictor which had eaten an elephant. You see, somebody told him that boa constrictors, whether it's true or not, I don't know, eat the the animals they eat, they eat them whole, and they keep them inside, and then they slowly digest it. So, to explain this to the grown-ups, the six-year-old child had to draw the inside of a boagon's trictor this apparent hat with the profile of the elephant drawn inside. Still, the grown-ups weren't pleased. For them, and I'd say for most of us, they ought to be just one way of reading what we see. So, the grown-ups advised the six-year-old Saint-Exupery to put away his drawing and to apply himself to study geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar, which he did, both in this story and in real life, becoming an outstanding airline pilot. Not only did he participate in the battle, air battles in the World War II, but uh, before that he opened up the commercial airline routes from France to South America. But the extraordinary thing is that Saint-Exupéry himself, whether this is fictional or not, he also retained the beginner's mind that allowed him to see everything with French eyes and to write, for real, extraordinary books like The Little Prince. Seeing with fresh eyes includes being open to making all kinds of constructions and then open to take those constructions apart. Including the picture of the elephant inside the boa constrictor. It's just like children being all sorts of castles in the air, in the sand and then easily enough giving them away, destroying them when they're through playing with them. The Buddha has some reflections on that. He's talking to a monk called Radha. He says, suppose, Radha, some little boys or girls are playing with sandcastles. So long as they are not devoid of lost desire, affection, thirst, passion, and craving for those sandcastles, they cherish them, they play with them, treasure them, and treat them possessively. But when those little boys lose the lost desire, affection, thirst, passion, and craving for those sandcastles, then they scatter them with their hands and feet, demolish them, shatter them, and put them out of play. And so. Here's the Buddha encouraging us to destroy the sandcastles after we've finished playing. But no, as we grow up, the sandcastles tend to become solidified, more difficult to demolish them. We end up clinging to the stability or rel- and reliability of the structures that we build. No matter how unreal they are. And we do that in all areas of life. Including relationships, of course. But, of course, we can't change this. And we can't recover the beginner's mind. Or retain. The beginner's mind, as Antoine de Saint Exupery did, or as Rilke, the poet, did. Here some some verses of his. He says in the sonnet to Orpheus. What locks itself in sameness has congealed. Is it safer to be gray and numb? What turns hard becomes rigid and is easily shattered. Pour yourself out like a fountain. Flow into the knowledge that you what you're seeking finishes off at the start and with ending begins. To begin to become a flowing mountain sorry. To become a flowing mountain. <laughs> flowing mountain, too. It. <laughs> to it. It's beautiful. To become a flowing mountain, we need to unclog-, unclog our mind, clean it up. Here's a quote from Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki, sorry. When you study Buddhism, you should have a general house cleaning of your mind. You must take everything out of your room and clean it thoroughly. If it's necessary, You may bring everything back in again. You may want many things. So, one by one, you can bring them back. But if they are not necessary, there is no need to keep them. They clog up up your mind. How do we accomplish this house cleaning? How do we disengage from all this paraphernalia we've been picking up and using it to construct our security cage? answer is through the practice. Through this practice or whatever other practice that can help doing that, the practice basically of meditation or anything meditation like. In this practice, as we sit, we invite the mind to stay focused, to stay present with experience. Any experience that we choose to be present with, like the breath, the sounds, whatever. And however, particularly in the early stages of practice, but that for how long that happens is hard to say. Instead of staying put with what to invite the mind to focus on, the mind strays all over the place. It becomes what some people call the monkey mind. Monkey mind because it behaves like caged monkeys do, you know. I don't know whether you've been or remember being to the zoo and uh, very often you go to the monkey's cage, and there the monkey starts jumping from one end to the other, and it's a fixed loop. It doesn't even it doesn't even know how to get out of that. Here, there, here, there, here. Like if it were frantically chasing after this, that, or the other thing and keeps doing it. And then at some time, you may come a little later, and you discover that it has shifted its loop. But it's, again, trapped on another loop. And that loop entraps him far more than the cage itself. For all I know, there may be an open trap in the bottom of the cage, where the monkey could get out. But it never occurs to him to look for that. So, obsessed with his own act. As if the only reality were the loops that he makes for himself, that it makes for itself. And and so with our mind, when we get Start following a a thought over and over again, an obsession. And, And it just doesn't dawn on us that we are trapped in our own obsession. That the moment we decide to turn it off, that's it. But we don't until a beginner's mind comes to the rescue and says, look at you. Look at you. You've trapped yourself. This is also what the practice does. It takes us to where we can connect with the real. even with the reality that, at times, we are fabricating fictions. The reality of the fabrication. Not the product of the fabrication, but the process of fabricating. And and that's helpful. Because until we, we come to the point that we realize that our world, part of our world, is fabricated, we can't dismantle it. practice makes it possible to to see through our constructions, to see through our fictions, and allows us to see things as they are. Our beginner's mind, trusts its own capacity to discover and then rediscover again. Otherwise, why should anybody in their right mind think that the picture of the hat was a picture of of an elephant inside the bar? But we can trust that. It's a fabrication. Wonderful. Wonderful. We can start all over again. And entrammeled by allegiances to this or that scheme of things. Our beginner's mind has finally learned not to trust in this or that scheme of things, but in the true nature of the mind, in its own capacity, the capacity of our mind, to know and know again. There's no knowledge to store up but what we need to do is join up with the world and discover. Here's Suzuki again. To be a human being, he says, is to be a Buddha. Buddha nature is another name for human nature, our true human nature. Thus, even though you do not do anything, you're actually doing something. You are expressing yourself. You are expressing your true nature. Just just sitting, not... Not constructing anything, not do anything, just expressing our true nature, feeling it, recognizing it. Your eyes will express, of course this is when you are not sitting, your eyes will express, your voice will express, your demeanor will express. The more, most important thing is to express your true nature in the simplest, most adequate way and to appreciate it in the smallest existence. While you are continuing this practice of expressing yourself, year after year, your experience will become deeper and deeper And your experience will cover everything you do in your everyday life. The most important thing is to forget all ideas about gaining stuff, all dualistic ideas. In other words, just practice. Do not think about anything, just remain on your cushion without expecting anything then, eventually, you will resume your true nature. That is to say, your true nature resumes itself. (coughs) He's saying our original nature is ready to resume when we set aside our cultural, personal constructions and open the way for our beginner's mind. In the process, we open the way for a life in intimacy with ourselves and with all others. From our beloved to a tiny mosquito. the late Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche puts it this way. When you awaken your heart, you find, to your surprise, that your heart is empty. It is empty in the Buddhist sense, not in the negative connotation of everyday language. You find that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible and solid. Of course, you may find something very solid if you have a grudge against somebody or you have fallen possessively in love, but that's not awakened heart. If you search for awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel it, there is nothing there except tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel a tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because somebody has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin tissue covering. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender and so personal. real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. You know, in the ordinary picture, if you're fearless because you're so tough and strong and macho, you know, and he's saying very rightly just the opposite. Real He's saying real fearlessness allows sadness into it. And it's okay with that. So, I continue the quote. Real fearlessness is a product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You could call it the beginner's heart. Time and time again, the experience of being present with life communicates to us a sense of being present with the real. A sense of being imbued with tenderness and intimacy with all. we learn to trust our beginner's mind and our beginner's heart. Let me end with a poignancy that only poetry can command. And this is in the words of Mary Oliver. I'll read her whole poem. It's not very long. It's entitled "What Is There Beyond Knowing." What is there beyond knowing that keeps calling to me? I can't call, turn. I can't turn in any direction, but it's there. I don't mean the live's grip and shine, or even the thrush's silk song, but the far of fire, for example, of the star, heaven's slowly turning theater of light, or the wind, playful with its breath, or time that's always rushing forward or standing still in the same, shall we say, moment, What I know, I could put into a pack as if it were bread and cheese and carry it on one shoulder. Important and honorable, but so small. While everything continues, unexplained and unexplainable. How wonderful it is! to follow a thought quietly to its logical end. I've done it a few times, but mostly I just stand in the dark field in the middle of the world, breathing in and out. Life so far doesn't have any other name but breath and light, wind and rain. If there's a temple, I haven't found it yet. I simply go on drifting in the heaven of the grass and the weeds. And there, among the grass and the weeds, is Mary Oliver's beginner's mind. Let's sit for a moment.